So here we are in a season which we always refer to as Advent. And um, these words, it's a concern of ours, the uh, use of words when we don't fully understand what they mean. What does Advent mean? Is it just kind of a fancy term for Christmas? Well, it's, it's certainly not that. It, in fact, goes back to the ancient world. And Advent was, in many ways, an award. An Advent was a celebration. It was a gift of a city to a visiting emperor or conquering general in Rome. It could be a gift of the Roman Senate to a man who was ascending to the throne. If they had waited a long time for the kind of emperor who would finally bring order to the chaos and provide for their needs, he would be granted an advent. They referred to this emperor, given the advent, as a soter, a savior. And in A.D. 54, the teenage great-grandson of Caesar Augustus was given an advent a celebration, an acclamation of the whole city as he came to the throne. He appeared as the new savior of Rome. But he turned out to be a tyrant. He was no savior. He was a destroyer. He had his own mother murdered. He murdered his pregnant wife, he persecuted the church and killed people by the thousands. And in the middle of that persecution, the apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in the Greek world telling them about a better advent, about a true king who came, a real savior. Not one who came as a tyrant, but one who came as a servant. Not one who came to destroy life, but to give life. Not one who said, I will line you up as soldiers in my forces so you can die for the extension of my empire, but someone who came and said, I will die so that you can enter my kingdom. This is why the early Christians had a basic confession in some ways, it mocked what the Romans said. The Romans always said, by way of greeting, Caesar is Lord. But of course, the ancient Christians said, say it with me, Jesus is Lord. That's the basic Christian confession. And when they said Jesus is Lord, they were not only saying something about Christ, born of Mary, who lived and died and rose and is at the right hand of the Father and is over all things. They were saying something about the world in which we live, that no state power, no political group can ever bring peace to the world. There is only one who can bring that, and it's the Prince of Peace. There's, there's no promise that can be made by an emperor or ruler that can change a human heart, but there is a promise that has been made, which when it 
did appear changed not only people, but all of history in the whole world. That's the theme of Advent for us this year, in the fullness of time. If you join us on Christmas Eve, I've got a message with just that title, in the fullness of time. It's from Galatians chapter 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And the sending of God's son into the world not only changed the lives of the people on the hillside in Bethlehem, those shepherds or those magi who came from Persia, it says about them they went home a different way. But it began to create a change in the entire story of the human race. And the reason for that is because people had been waiting, waiting for so long for the word to be fulfilled, that word of promise. And Advent was given to the emperor for whom we'd waited, the one who appeared to be the one who would fulfill the promise. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice. Why do we rejoice? Because he has appeared. And I want you to read about that with me in Paul's letter in Titus chapter 3. Let's look at it. Titus chapter 3. He talks about the state of our own life, the intervention of God, and the result of that intervention. Let's look at it. Titus chapter 3 verse 3. We ourselves were once... Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's the human race before the advent of Jesus. That's our heart before Christ comes to us. We sit around envying other people. I want that guy's car, and I want that gal's looks, and I want that person's neighborhood, and I want that gate code. I'm really after that one. These are the things that I envy, and I'm angry at the people who have what I don't have. I hate them, and then we're surprised that there are people who hate us. He says, we were hating others, and discovered that people were hating us. This was our life of envy and anger. Verse four, but, but, would you say that with me? But, but, <laughs> when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Well, let me just give you this very brief message in three key phrases. Look at it in verse four, or sorry, verse three. Once were, we were once this way. Once we were this way, we once were. Verse four, but. So once were, but. And then at the beginning of verse seven, so that. A whole new way of living. Here's the way we were. This is what God has done. And this is the new life we've been given. So let me very briefly just outline that for you. An old life, a new birth, 
and a whole new way of living, a new eternal hope. Our old life is described here as slavery. We were slaves. And whenever any of the ancient Christians were talking about slavery, they didn't have in view, of course, contemporary slavery, whether it's the kind of trafficking thing we see today, millions of people trafficked, or 19th and 18th century slavery in Europe and North America. No, they were really thinking about the exodus and the experience of God's people in Egypt where they were oppressed. And they could not break those shackles themselves. It was not something from which they could deliver themselves. One rabbi said the Garden of Eden could have been called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Because in Eden... God had perfect communion with man. Man enjoyed God's presence. They spoke together. They walked together. But then man committed high treason against God and was banished from that communion and went far from God. He descended into a deep slavery to death, the fear of death, to sin, and its chains on our heart. Sometimes we don't recognize it. We're a little bit like Scrooge in front of Marley, seeing Marley's change and hearing Marley say, I forged this one every day of my life and this is from seven years ago and you've been working on yours ever since. It's a ponderous chain and you can't free yourself from it. And you know down deep in your soul that the envy, the anger, the hatreds, all of these things, which are the skeletons in our closet, which we cannot undo, There are people scouring right now their social media accounts because they want to get jobs in the future or not lose the job they have. There are people who look at what they've written over the years in secret accounts and are saying with Lady Macbeth, out, out, thou damned spot. They can't get it out. They can't erase it fast enough. We suddenly realize that there are things in our lives we can't in our past get rid of. There are chains down in our souls of bitterness and despair and fear that we can't break. That's where we've been. And we've lost Eden. We've lost Emmanuel. But look what it says God does. But, verse 4. God stepping into the middle of our despair. When the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. When Christ was born of Mary. When after all of those years of promise, of all of the prophets saying he would come, he did. And he split time in two. And he came And his name is Emmanuel, God with us. He brought us back into communion with God. And it says he did this, look what the phrase is, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This is a sovereign work of God in the human soul that changes the heart. He does it through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Christ does it through the Holy Spirit and the power of his word. The Father in eternity past, seeing the plight that we would fall into, arranged for our rescue, our redemption. And the Son said, Father, I will go and I will give my life. I'll shed my blood 
I will be the lamb whose Passover blood is over the door so that they can be rescued and redeemed from slavery. I'll get them out. And then the Holy Spirit said, I will go and I will take what Christ did 2,000 years ago and I will personally apply it to the lives of people living in sunny Boca Raton, Florida 2,000 years later. And they all said, that's a plan, that's a plan. The father planned, the son came and achieved what the father arranged and the spirit applied to you what the son accomplished on the cross and he calls it a new birth. Listen friend, this morning you don't need a second chance, you need a new life. You don't need a makeover and there is no nip or tuck for the soul that can take care of this issue, that we are slaves of sin and death. It takes a new birth. The scriptures say this, this is the same word, it means born again. And you go, oh, that phrase, born again, I find that so offensive. It just grates on me. One cynic in the New York Times wrote a couple of years ago, the problem with Christians who are born again is that they're even worse the second time. <laughs> we despise that phrase, oh, born again. Well, I know some people who need to be born again. Yeah, those are those people, well, they probably do need to be born again, but not, not me, not me, I'm, 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 I'm okay. But yeah, those people on the other side of the tracks, you know, the, you know, those people, the poorly educated, the people that don't look like me, the people over there who don't have the material well-being that I possess. Well, you know, I mean, the addicts, you know, the people that are in treatment centers, yeah, those people, they, the people in prison, you know, those people. They, yeah, they need to be born again. But the problem, the problem with your theory there is that when Jesus said to a man, you must be born again, he didn't say it to somebody from the other side of the tracks. He didn't say it to somebody from a bad neighborhood. He said it to a man named Nicodemus, who was one of the leaders of Jerusalem. He was part of the cultural elite. He was highly educated. He was wealthy. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was powerful. He was theologically astute. And he was proud. And he came to Jesus. And here's how the conversation with Jesus began that night. Nicodemus came up to Jesus and he said, we know. Now, can I just tell you that if you start a conversation with God telling him what you know, that's not going to end well. And by the end of the conversation, Nicodemus was saying, how can this be? And Jesus said, oh, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? So Jesus took him down a few notches from all of his self-righteousness. You see, that's what it says here. It says he saved us not because of works we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. See, what Nicodemus didn't know is that he had to be saved by mercy. He viewed his life as being accomplished. You and I are classic resume builders. 
We go online, we put our resume out there, we use Indeed or some other service, and we list our educational background, our professional accomplishments, the various certificates of achievement which have been awarded to us. We list all of that out there in hopes of gaining at least the Zoom interview in which we can make an impression because we're so good looking. And if we are good looking enough, maybe we can get an in-person interview and then get the job and get the car and get the neighborhood and get the house and then go to hell when we die. It's very exciting. But we build those resumes, and then religious people do it too. We think, well, I, 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 he talks about not wicked things you've done, but things we've done in our righteousness. Your righteousness, Isaiah, God said through Isaiah, your righteousness is as filthy rags. And that's a very polite translation. The Hebrew is, your righteousness is like a menstrual rag. Whoa, that's us on a good day. If I had a humble day, I'd be proud of it. This is who we are. And none of those things are impressive to God. We don't come up to God and go, look how good I am. That's what Nicodemus was doing. We know. And Jesus looked at his heart and said, you know, Mr. Mr. Wall Street wealthy, Mr. K Street connected, Mr. Ivy educated, you need to be born again. You need a new birth. You need a new heart. And you can be saved because God is a merciful God. You can never achieve salvation as a reward. My friends, heaven is not a reward you achieve. It's a gift you receive. And that's why what we have is an eternal hope. Look at the so that, verse 7. Look what happens as a result of the new birth. So that being justified by his grace, we become heirs of the hope of eternal life. This is a candle called the hope candle this morning on the Advent wreath. It's this first candle of hope. You heard read for you at the beginning of the service, Genesis 3, about the promise made to the serpent who had deceived our first parents and the Lord said to the serpent, the woman is going to give birth to a son. And yes, you're going to bruise him on the heel, but when you do, he will crush your head. And for centuries and for millennium, the whole human race have been looking for the woman to give birth to the son. They waited and they waited and they waited. They waited in hope. Now, hope in the Bible is not the kind of hope that we have. There's some of you sitting out here today going, I hope Brazil wins the World Cup. I hope it's Argentina, you know. I hope it's England. But these are hopes that are uncertain. They're the subject of human achievement. But hope in the Bible is not like that. Hope is not about something uncertain. It's about something which is certain, which will come, though it does not come in our time. According to our timetable, we don't know exactly how it's going to work out. That's why it says we're the heirs of eternal life. If you're an heir, that's something which is solid. It's written down. It's going to come to pass. You don't know when it's going to come to pass, but it will come to pass. We have the hope of eternal life. This is why the second coming of Jesus is called the blessed hope. It's not hoping for something that might happen. It's living for something that will happen. Now, we don't know when it is. I think it'd be great if Jesus got back by next Tuesday or so. But we don't know. 
And there's lots of people running around saying, well, these are obviously the last days. Well, I don't know about that. There's lots of people who thought it was the last days. Imagine living in Europe in the 13th century with the black death running around. 25% of the population slaughtered and wars all over the place. You might've thought you were living in the last days right then, but you weren't. You may think you're living in the last days. I don't know, maybe. Maybe Jesus doesn't come for another 10,000 years. That would make you the early church. We don't know where we are in the story, but we have this hope, the blessed hope. You see, people who have been born again have this living hope that Christ who has made us a new creation will not stop until the new creation he's made us to be is what we are seen to be. Because what happens in the new birth is you cease being who you were and you begin the journey towards what you were always created to be. And between those two places are two words from Jesus. He hung on the cross and he said, it is finished. And at the end of history, he will say, it is done. And between it is finished and it is done is where you and I live today. Now I have a question for you. Have you been born again? Have you had the Holy Spirit bring Christ to you and forgive your sins? For those of you who have, we celebrate this meal today. Paul said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until you come, until he comes. And so I want to invite you to take that small portion, which is actually a feast by faith. And if you haven't been uh, served yet, that communion cup, if you uh, raise your hands, we'll get it to you. If you, don't, if you need one, just raise your hand. And this is for all those who have put their faith in Christ. Just keep your hand up. We'll get, there's one right over here as well in the front row. Thank you, ushers. We'll get to you. We need some down here, guys. Down here. Thanks very much. And what we want to do is eat and drink together around the Lord's table. Paul said, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it all of it. Drink from it all of you. And so brothers and sisters, you have a choice. You can put your trust in your righteousness, but did you notice what the text said? He saved us not according to our righteousness, but according to his what? Mercy. Mercy is what we put our trust in, mercy. God is merciful. There's one of two people you can be this morning in one of Jesus' stories. A man was standing there saying, Lord, I thank you I am not like this guy over here who's obviously a wreck. I have it together. Or you can be like the guy who really was a wreck and you can hear his prayer. He said, Lord, have mercy on me a sinner. And Jesus said, that's the guy, that's the guy who went home justified. That's the guy who ends up in heaven. So if you're sitting there in your pride this morning saying, I've got it all together, Lord, I thank you. I'm not as bad as everybody else. You may want to take a step over and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's pray. Lord, we set aside this bread and this wine 
from common use unto sacred purpose. We confess our sins to you right now. From our heart, we say, to you, O Savior of the world, have mercy on me, a sinner. And in taking this bread and in drinking this wine, we confess that you are our Savior and Lord, that we are yours, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything you've done. And we praise you, and we long for your return. But until that day, feed us and nourish us so that we may have the strength to walk with you. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, would you take the, the bread and with thankful hearts, take and eat. This is the body of Christ, which is given for you. And now with thankful hearts, let's take the cup. Take and drink. This is the blood of Christ, which was shed for you. Thanks be to God. Amen. This is the Lord's doing and marvelous in our eyes. Aren't we glad that God our Savior has appeared? Amen. What a wonderful Savior we have. Let's stand together and let's sing and praise him and rejoice together.